Hey, folks. Pattern is a disability insurance company, and they know that you want to be confident and in control of your finances. In order to do that, you need to buy disability insurance. Pattern understands the problem is that researching insurance is complicated and time-consuming, which can make you feel overwhelmed and unsure of who to trust. Pattern knows that your time is valuable, and they believe that doctors have more important things to do than worry about insurance. That's why thousands of doctors have trusted Pattern to help them understand the insurance they're buying. Here's how they do it. You go in, you request your quotes, you compare your options, and you buy risk-free. So request your quotes today at PatternLife.com. That's P-A-T-T-E-R-N-L-I-F-E.com. So you can stop wasting time and feeling overwhelmed and instead save money and spend time on the things you love, being confident your family and income are protected. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I am excited to have back with me today via Skype Dr. Jacqueline Galvin, who, as you probably remember from our fantastic debate we had last time, is an assistant professor of anesthesia at the University of Illinois at Chicago and is the fellowship director of obstetric anesthesiology there. Jacqueline, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me again. So we today are going to do another OB podcast, of course, your area of specialty, and we're going to talk about labor analgesia. This is something that is tested very frequently on in-training exams and board exams, and I think will be really high yield, so I'm looking forward to it. Hey, folks, it's Jed Wolpaw here. Just going to jump in and say that now that we've done the podcast, I'm coming back, and I'm going to apologize up front because some of the audio cut out a little bit. We didn't have the best connection. I've tried to summarize every time we cut out so that you didn't miss what Jacqueline was saying, but I think we really did capture a lot of great stuff, and most of it is fine. You'll see there's just some sections where she cuts out a little bit. I think you'll get the important part of what she's saying, and in any sections where it was pretty hard to catch, I have gone back and summarized. Next time we uh, do one via Skype, we'll make sure we have a better connection. All right, let's get back to the show. Jacqueline, let's start off with really basic. When we talk about labor analgesia, of course, that means we're treating pain. So what, where is the pain that we're treating in laboring women, and what do we, how do we think about it? Exactly. Great. Um, so you can think of it or divide it into the first stage and the second stage. So the first stage of labor is when the uterus begins to contract regularly and the cervix makes change all the way until 10 centimeters of dilation. So this pain is typically described as visceral in nature, arising from the lower uterine segment and the cervix um, in terms of spinal cord origins from T10 to L1, and it's generally a diffuse pain, sort of Ill, ill-defined in terms of an exact um, location. The second stage of labor combines not only pain from the first stage, but also the somatic pain of the fetus descending into the vaginal canal and then eventually out of the vaginal canal. This involves um, deformation of the perineal tissues and, uh, and the vagina, and that pain not only includes T10 to L1 with the first stage, but all the way through S4, including the pedundal nerves. And this pain can also have referred pain to the thighs, the legs, the buttocks, and the back. Um, so two distinct sort of different origins where this pain is coming from. Great. All right. And then just to orient everyone. So we, as you said, the first stage of labor is from the onset of labor until a woman is 10 centimeters dilated. The cervix That's is 10 correct. centimeters. Dilated. And then the second stage is from that moment on until the baby is born. Is that right? That is correct. And yes. then the third stage is until the placenta is delivered. 
Exactly. Okay. So good. We were, or now we're oriented. Great. All right. So we've got the first <laughs> and the second stage. And, yes. uh, so what, what is it that actually, are there things that influence, uh, you know, kind of how much pain, obviously different women have different levels of pain. I think we can all agree. This is something that's, uh, those of us who aren't women who have observed it have, have seen <laughs> as being very painful, but are, are there some, you know, inf- things that influence how painful it is? Exactly. So it's not enough just to think about book definitions, anatomic locations, but also what factors into how much pain women will be having. So some physical factors include things like maternal age. So unfortunately, advanced maternal age may lean to more pain during labor parity. So obviously, the more babies you've had, it might be an easier time to deliver said fetus. So that may contribute to less pain. Or on the converse end, um, younger nulliparis, women who have not had babies before, tend to have uh, more longer and painful deliveries. Um, also, it depends on how the cervix is, is well, the cervix is light at the beginning of labor. If it's edematous or still very thick, that they contribute to um, an increased amount of pain during labor. Of course, the size and position of the fetus. So big babies, babies that are occipit posterior are more likely to cause more pain to the mom. And there is a, uh, a phenomenon such where a woman has labor dystocia, so they have greater pain, greater difficulties during the labor process. Um, that these women are probably more likely to go on to cesarean delivery. In fact, some studies suggest that the more often you have to top up epidurals during labor, which we'll talk about later, may be a harbinger of women who may need C-sections um, towards the end of their labor okay. process. Now, when you say occiput posterior, that is, is kind of upside down in kind of lay terms, right? Upside so they, down, right? Yeah. So the back of the baby's head is rubbing against the mom's sacral, sacral bone, Okay, sacrum. And it's the uh, kind of opposite of the way that we think Mother Nature intended and therefore makes it harder. And if it's harder to push the baby out, there's likely to be more pain. Exactly. Um, And then moving on from there, so not only are these physical factors, but also some psychological factors. So different things that influence the pain experience. So the, the person's cultural background, their baseline fear, apprehension, presence or absence of birthing members can all can contribute or exacerbate or lessen the pain experience. So, for example, in, in the OB literature, there is this uh, phenomenon of a pain catastrophizing, which is generally described as this sort of maladaptive response to coping mechanisms for labor pain. And studies that looked at this said, suggested that patients who are prone to this pain catastrophizing have different levels of anxiety, um, confidence in their ability to go through the labor process can negatively potentially affect their labor process and lead to uh, different responses to their analgesia. Um, and additionally, this phenomenon of pain catastrophizing, again, can be associated with fear of displacing the epidural itself or pressure from others to receive uh, labor analgesia. So it's just another confounding factor that one just wants to consider when they're discussing uh, pain management options with patients during the labor process. Okay. And now is there, if you kind of identify when you're uh, meeting with a, a woman early in labor or maybe even, you know, pre-labor, that this, some of these factors may be present? Is there anything that we sure, can do Sure. There's about a it? couple of, that's a good question. So in terms of identifying, there are a couple of uh, questionnaires or surveys out there that could potentially be useful, um, but again, none are like strictly validated pregnant patients per se. And then what can we do about it? I think we can get into that later, Um, but essentially a really good 
where a good place to start is really good um, expectation setting right up front and what are the reasonable expectations of whatever uh, labor analgesic modality they ultimately pick. Okay, great. So what is the, you know, I, I hate to say why do we care because obviously we don't want our patients to be in pain. Sure. But above and beyond, uh, you know, comfort of, for the mother, are there other impacts of labor pain or are there other effects of labor pain on the course of labor or on the fetus itself? Yes, so um, three main uh, physiologic points I want to point out, and then that'll serve analgesics. In the respiratory system, as you can imagine, when the patient is uh, laboring, the noxious stimulation of uterus contraction is a strong respiratory stimulant. So the mom hyperventilates during the contraction period, increased minimum ventilation and increased O2 consumption, which is generally well-tolerated in an otherwise healthy mom and healthy pregnancy. But also in between these heavy, uh, heavy breathing during contractions, and there's compensatory periods of hypoventilation, um, which uh, can be exacerbated by systemic opioids or other things. In the cardiovascular system, obviously the heart has to deal with all the autotransfusion of blood in between contractions, which also increases cardiac work, which again is tolerated in other healthy pregnancies. Um, also, nor uh, epinephrine and norepinephrine are profound increased during labor, and epinephrine in particular is a tocolytic, meaning it causes the process of delivering, which can lead to dysfunctional labor. Which so, some, Jackie, sorry, we're, we're, cutting, uh, we're cutting out a little bit, but let me just, yes. so, so it sounds like sure. so you were saying sure. uh, you get an increase in epinephrine and norepinephrine, uh, and I think you said norepinephrine increases by somewhere in the 200 to 600% range during labor? That is correct. So they both increase dramatically during labor. Um, and this can lead to a dysfunctional labor pattern, which may be able to be ameliorated or resolved with an adequate analgesic plan. Okay. Um, lastly, um, uh, not or not being able to treat this pain and this uh, sympathetic overload appropriately may lead to some things that uh, interfere with mother and baby bonding immediately post delivery, postpartum depression, or PTSD. So it's an important reason to try to help these moms have really great pain relief. The placental unit, during the uterine contraction, there's periods of decreased blood flow to the placenta, which may be poorly tolerated in certain high-risk pregnancies like preeclampsia, diabetes, IUGR, which, again, appropriate analgesic option may help improve outcomes for these particular pregnancies. Okay, that's great. Now, is that because when we think about the uterine contraction causing decreased blood flow, uh, obviously with good analgesia, you'll still have the contractions, but is, is there some reason why there's still better f- blood flow, or why do we think that, that plays a role there? So one of the theories is that augmenting this really high uh, catecholamine surge that is normally present during will allow for the uterus to properly contract since those catecholamines are tocolytics. And when the uterus can properly contract, the mom can have a reasonable respiratory cardiac um, physiology during. It may allow better blood flow overall to the placenta on the baby. Okay. Sounds good. So what do we do to try to prevent this pain? <laughs> okay, so... 
approach is trying to identify what your goals are when you're going to provide labor analgesia. So clearly we want to relieve the sensory pain. Um, but other things we want to do is, aside from relieving pain, is also preserve motor function to facilitate the second and the third stage of labor. Um, but we also want to have a reasonable discussion with our patients and our providers, but then I mean, etc about what is possible or not possible, again, with the um, labor analgesic that it is best for the, the patient in the overall scenario. Okay, so sorry, Jackie, so you just cut out a little bit, but let me, so basically we want to balance the two goals of both relieving pain but also preserving motor function, so that's always a little tricky. And then also I think the last, exactly. thing, the last thing you were saying was educating the patient about what is and what is not possible to set realistic expectations. Is that right? That is correct, yeah. Okay, great. So, what do, you know, one thing that, that, you know, can certainly be used and that we use for non-labor pain a lot uh, are opiates, of course. So, maybe we should start there. What Do we use opiates for labor pain? And if so, how do you think about them? Great. Um, so, in terms of the role of opioids, so... In the U.S., they don't have a profound role, but there is a role still in especially low-resource countries. Um, unfortunately, they're not studied vigorously because there's significant maternal and a better alternative, that being neuroactive anesthesia. Um, the analgesia is incomplete at best most often, and the side effects are really dose and timing related, which we'll get into when we talk about numifentanil. But for example, for the mom, there's often nausea, vomiting, sedation, uh, gastric emptying issues. And for the baby, we have to remember that opioids do cross the placenta. They can cause in utero and neonatal depression and possibly decrease variability on external monitoring, which may influence decision-making on part of the obstetrician. Okay, great. So... Again, the one the one part that cut out a little bit there. So you were saying uh, that in addition to um, uh, that, they can be they can help with labor pain, but uh, it is there are these side effects combined with what many people would say is a better alternative, and and therefore makes it uh, something we don't use quite as much. Yes. Okay. Great. So you mentioned Remy Fentanyl. To what, remind me, what is Remy Fentanyl and what role does it have in, in all of this? <laughs> Great. Uh, so Remy Fentanyl is a uh, quick-on, quick-off opioid. Um, it's used during labor. Labor is actually considered off-label, so that doesn't need to be taken into consideration. Um, so as I mentioned, quick-on, quick-off because of its metabolism by plasma colonesterases. Um, it does cross the placenta, like we mentioned, for all opioids, and it has a variable plasma concentration in the mom, um, which is due to different physiologic changes in the mom's blood volume, plasma levels, uh, protein distribution, volume of distribution, things like that. Um, so in terms of how well does it work as a sole, an- sole analgesic, um, it works okay. Some of the studies do report a moderate reduction in pain score when it's used early in labor, but pain scores do tend to trend back up as labor progresses. Um, there's also a issue with timing. So, for example, if the mom presses her Remy PC or PCH at the top of her contraction, they might not feel the analgesic effects until maybe the next contraction. So, if the timing and dosing intervals off, the mom won't actually get the analgesic she's expecting. Right. I mean, also, of course, there's limited there. Sorry. 
No, no, I, I was just saying, yeah, so yeah. I, that is my, the, when I have seen these used, that is the, the big drawback is that, and I think what you were saying is that women uh, may push the button, so this is a Remy fentanyl in a PCA, patient-controlled analgesia form, so they can give themselves a dose, and if they wait until the contraction starts and then push the button, by the time it kicks in, right. the contraction may be over or almost over. That is correct, which certainly can be overcome with it involves a lot of buy-in for the patient and the uh, and the provider as well. And we lost you there, Jackie. You were saying uh, there, it certainly it certainly can be overcome by what? Sorry, overcome by um, education and buy-in from not only the patient but of course the provider and having a lot of patience and understanding, you know, between the two. Right. Great. So not impossible, but. Um, and then when you look at and compare to other analgesic techniques, so it's uh, unequivocally inferior turnaraxial, and that is, of course, not just my opinion. That's been shown in studies. Um, and it's nitrous oxide, but it also might be synergistic in conjunction with nitrous oxide. Uh, for example, a study by Agar Pashti and others, um, so there was a remedy with nitrous from... It's a three out of five compared to just nitrous by itself. Um, so it may have some added qualities and it's used with an inhalational agent. So, Jackie, sorry, um, we, with that, next you, we look you, at you the, cut out uh, a bit there. Let me just summarize. So I think, okay. uh, tell me if I'm right, but uh, you were saying that, um, that remifentanil is definitely uh, inferior to neuraxial uh, anesthesia, and that's been shown in that's studies, correct. but it's equivocal uh, to nitrous oxide, maybe synergistic with nitrous oxide, and you, you mentioned a study... Uh, that showed that nitrous um, and Remy together had pain scores uh, decrease quite a bit. Yes, that is correct. Okay, great. Um, but again, these are small studies in otherwise healthy patients who have the system you know, to support these two you know, additional uh, labor analgesics. Right. So that's important to note. Great. Um, if we want to move on really quick to the last two parts about Remy fentanyl. So we look at, is it safe for the mom? Um, Relatively, so there is some side effects like we talked about, dizziness, nausea, vomiting, itching, so on and so forth. But the incidence of respiratory depression for the mom may be anywhere from 15 to 40%, depending on the definition of respiratory depression. Um, and that in comparison to epidural analgesia, there are lower O2 saturations and higher end tidal CO2 on external monitoring. So again, in some particular patient populations, this might not be safe. And then we look at for the fetus, as we mentioned, um, it may cause a reduction in beat-to-beat -beat variability, which, again, may influence obstetrical delivery decision-making. And um, just, yeah, that's, I think, a really, sorry, that's, that I just want to emphasize because I think it's a great point. So, uh, and in case anybody is missing the significance of that, if the REMI, though not causing any lasting harm to the fetus, causes the fetus to, let's make it simple, to sleep and not be Correct. responsive when, for example, the obstetricians might be looking at the beat-to-beat -beat variability, which will be less if the fetus is asleep or is narcotized, they might say, oh, this doesn't look good, we need to do a C-section, even though it wasn't right. actually fetal distress, it was just fetal response to REMI fentanyl. That is exactly correct. Okay. Um, so that needs to be taken into consideration. Um, but in terms of other opioids, it's less harmful than other opioids. And my example is meperidine that has a metabolite half-life in uh, neonates of 60 hours, um, which is a long time. 
Um, so it's less harmful than other opioids. So I think to break it down to rummy fentanyl pearls, if you want to call it that, um, most obstetric anesthesiologists don't consider it a first-line agent for those uh, things that we had mentioned earlier. In terms of dosing, the typical doses um, for a PCA are 0.25 to maybe 1 micro kg with a lockout of 1 to 5 minutes, plus or minus a background infusion. But most importantly, you want to have safety mechanisms in place, which are recommended to be continuous one-on-one care and some sort of apnea or caponography monitoring and continuous pulse oximetry as well. Yeah, that all makes sense. So not just something you you put in someone's room and walk away, essentially. Absolutely. All right, so that's great. Now, you mentioned uh, the potential synergy between remifentanil and nitrous oxide. So tell me more about nitrous oxide. Is that something that is ever used alone, or is that only used in conjunction with remifentanil? Yes, it is uh, used alone, and institutions such as um, Vanderbilt, for example, have a well-established nitrous oxide protocol. But overall, you just is to UK and Australia, where sometimes over oh, 50% Jackie, of Jackie, their we, we lost you there for uh, a patients sec. will use it. Um, let's sorry. Let's sorry. back up. No, it's okay. I, uh, so let's just back up and, sure. uh, to the nitrous. So you were saying um, it is used alone. There are some institutions. I think you mentioned Vanderbilt uh, that use it a fair amount. Actually, at UCSF where I trained, uh, it was at least an option. Uh, so mm-hmm. it is used alone some places. And then you were saying that's correct. And then what? What did you say after that? So I think in comparison. Um, to the UK and Australia, they have a very high utilization rate, sometimes more than 50% of their laboring patients. Or in the U.S., overall utilization is still pretty low in comparison to neuraxial anesthetics. Got it. Great. Um, so the uh, the way it works is it's obviously a you know rapidly inhaled um, agent that is administered in a 50% mixture that has some NMDA antagonistic properties, which helps ameliorate some pain during labor. Um, so when we look at it as a sole labor analgesic technique, um, for example, in a study that looked at 5,000 deliveries, they actually found that of those 5,000 deliveries, only 3% of the women, this is a U.S. study, used it. So who's more likely to use it? People that were nulla so women that have not had a baby before, people that are English-speaking. Um, interestingly, of the 3% that used it, 50% of those women initially wanted a natural birth or did not want a medicated birth. Um, so those might be the people that are more interested in, in nitrous. Um, these women only in this particular study use it only really for 80 minutes, so not a extremely long time. And during that time, there was a reasonable reduction in pain scores. But most interestingly, 63% of the women who use a nitrous ultimately converted to neuraxial anesthesia. And they found that identifiable risk factors of people that would convert from nitrous to a neuraxial for people undergoing induction of labor or augmentation of labor with oxytocin. And they reported some maternal side effects as dizziness, uh, dry mouth, nausea, vomiting. Okay. Um, second, secondly, um, ANA published a study just this year that looked at 6,200 deliveries. Um, of the 6,200, 80% used neuraxial and 20% used nitrous. Um, what they found that uh, they found actually only a 40% conversion rate from neuraxial to I'm sorry from nitrous to neuraxial. 
Um, they found all the women that used neuraxial, greater than 90% of the women had high an- analgesic effectiveness. But there was a pretty overall low analgesic effectiveness reported uh, with nitrous, so less than 50%. However, the interesting part that, that even though analgesic effectiveness with nitrous was reported as low, that women were by far and away more satisfied with their labor analgesia compared to the neuraxial group. And there are probably a number of reasons for this, including the ability to deliver the nitrous sort of at will. And also, um, they could walk around, they could eat some other things. Um, so even though overall it's not super great as a sole analgesic, women were much more satisfied with the overall experience with it. And do you think um, there may be a cultural kind of aspect to this in the sense that you mentioned that the, uh, one of the studies showed that women who came in wanting a natural birth were more likely to use nitrous, and so maybe if they succeed in avoiding the epidural and only use nitrous that there's some there's some sort of validation there like i i did what i wanted i had a sort of natural birth i didn't use, i didn't get an epidural so that may uh you know of course i'm just making this up i don't have any data for this but i wonder if that may contribute to the feeling of satisfaction with those who only use nitrous exactly it's now right on the head that if it's more of these more women that prefer more natural labor course or um, want to have sort of more of a participatory role in their birth plan, that this may be a mode that provides some pain relief, but ultimately lets the women sort of be more in control of their body, of their sensory. They don't have to have Foley's, you know, so there's more that goes into analgesic satisfaction than just pain relief per se. So it's an interesting topic. Great. All right. So how does um, it, how does it mm-hmm. work? You know, I, I mean, I've seen it, but for our listeners, you know, maybe wondering, okay, I've, I've used nitrous in the operating room, but how do you use it on an awake laboring patient? Exactly. So I will fully disclose that we don't have it um, at my particular institution, although we're looking into it. Um, but from my understanding, so I think the first things first, as we talked about, you have to set up you know, patient expectations um, with the patient, with the providers, with your nurses, and, you know, so on and so forth. Um, you do need to get the, the tank and a scavenging system to eliminate the nitrous oxide waste from the room and have your environmental uh, people come in and inspect and be able to support uh, the scavenging system and the tanks and whatnot. Um, you do have to remember your relative nitrous contraindications. So if you happen to have a woman with a pneumothorax, not a great idea. Um, but when we get down to your your question. Um, so you need a cooperative and capable patient that is able to hold the mask to their face, make a seal, time it with their contractions, and take a slow, deep breath. And ideally, you want to begin in about 30 seconds or so before the, the onset of the contraction, so the peak of the nitrous effect is the same, the peak of your contraction. And the same thing with the REMI, that if the timing is off, the analgesic property is just not going to be where it needs to be. Um, and then lastly, just from a billing perspective, depending on your institution and things like that, you may be able to only bill for like just the nitrous or just the epidural. So that needs to be taken into account as well. Okay. Now, how, how would a woman know if she's 30 seconds before the onset of a contraction? <laughs> I'm going to say, Judd, that probably women know. You know, okay. especially if you're in a regular contraction pattern, of course, and you're able to time it with that. Um, that will certainly help, which again is uh, patients that are probably more successful women that are sort of in tune with their labor process, very motivated, you know, um, things like that. 
Okay, sounds good. As long as so there, there in theory, there must be some kind of pre-contraction feeling that uh, at least once things are regular, that women have. <laughs> yes. Okay. All right. I'll take your word for it. All right. That so, could be another podcast. <laughs> that uh, sounds good. All right. So uh, good. So that's nitrous. So now maybe should we talk about the, the what I assume is the most common form, at least in in our country, which would be neuraxial. Uh, agreed. So. Um, Again, I think this could be its own separate discussion, but I'll just briefly go through uh, four techniques. One being traditional epidural, um, which is the standard technique where loss resistance is achieved in the epidural space. A catheter is threaded. A test dose is given to determine that the catheter is not in a vein or in the intrathecal space. And then um, generally the catheter is dosed or loaded with a dilute local anesthetic, and then a some sort of maintenance is provided, so either with a continuous infusion modality or program intermittent bolus. Now, and Jackie, if, I, if nice. I'm remembering correctly, you uh, you put the death knell to the traditional epidural uh, last time we That talked. is correct. I'm trying to be objective okay, right now. Okay, fair enough. Um, but it's one of the great advantages um, is it's you can utilize it to slowly titrate your anesthetic and not have wild dynamic swings. And that is still um, a meaningful use of an epidural, certainly. Okay. Um, second is my all-time favorite, combined spinal epidural, which involves the initial approach to epidural, whereby you get loss of resistance in the epidural space. And then a smaller spinal needle is threaded through the epidural space, which then punctures the dura, um, there should be a return of CSF in the spinal needle, and then you can give a uh, very small injection of either local anesthetic or and or combination of opioid, which sets up your analgesic rapidly within five minutes, and then the catheter is is threaded and left behind, and that maintains your labor analgesia. Great. Now, for listeners who uh, want the specifics of kind of what one might put in terms of doses and in terms of medications, please refer to the debate we had uh, with Dr. Galvin and uh, Dr. Hofkamp, where they actually did give uh, some examples of what they would do. So I don't think we need to go back into those specifics now. I agree. Um, Two other less utilized or I'll just say it that way. Um, there's also this concept of dural puncture epidural where um, unlike with a full combined spinal epidural where something is given in the intrathecal space, a dural puncture epidural, you just confirm CSF flow via the spinal needle that is through the epidural needle. And then through there, after that, you th- leave your epidural catheter behind in the epidural space, and you can bolus it up similar to a traditional epidural. And some thought is that it gives you that uh, midline confirmation of the CSE, but uh, without the hemodynamic swings associated with um, a rapid onset spinal. Great. And lastly, um, if we want about or just touch on um, spinal for uh, analgesia or continuous spinal, meaning um, a catheter is left behind in, in the interest is a reliable technique, as we discussed, but in the appropriate hands with appropriate uh, sign-out and, and management plan because intrathecal space, again, is so unforgiving relative to the epidural space. The doses have to be lowered by at least um, at least tenfold. So uh, those require sort of special handling and care, but can achieve the same thing. 
Absolutely. Now you cut uh, out right at the beginning. So what I, I'm just going to fill in. So what you were referring to with that was a continuous spinal. So you had said, I think, when a catheter is either purposely or or uh, inserted into the intrathecal space, or if uh, accidentally a dural puncture is made and, and the choice is made to thread the epidural catheter into the intrathecal space, you can run that, yes. but you have to reduce the dose by a fa- at least a factor of 10. And of course, as you mentioned, you have to be very careful that no one mistakes this for an epidural and doses it uh, as if it were an epidural. Exactly, exactly. Um, and so I usually, if that happens, uh, our institution, I generally go over with the resident a plan. So what are we going to do for labor maintenance? What are we going to do for breakthrough pain? And what are we going to do if we go to the OR? That way everything is clear in everybody's mind to try to avoid uh, things like high final. Great. So... What comes up I've seen on in-training exams and, and board exams sometimes are alternatives uh, to neuraxial anesthesia and opioids, other kinds of blocks. So are there other blocks yes. that are done, and, and how do they work? There are other types of blocks that can be done. Um, first, we'll talk about a bilateral paracervical block. Um, so that block is appropriate to cover visceral pain from the first stage of labor only, and that essentially involves excuse me, injection of local anesthetic at the lateral aspects of the cervix. Um, it has a benefit is that it doesn't involve any gross motor and sensory block for the mom. Um, however, you keep in mind that it doesn't cover somatic pain for the second stage, and one of the reasons it fell out of favor is because there's potential for injection of these high volumes of local anesthetic into the fetal scalp, which can cause very deleterious effects for the fetus. Um, so for those reasons, it's not widely used as a first line. Okay, so that was Another just to, of, sorry, because I uh, just want to fill in from the beginning. The, the audio was cutting out for a sec. So the bilateral paracervical block, you said injected at the lateral aspects of the cervix, um, and that correct. can work for the first stage, but, and this is commonly where those questions come from, is w- they'll give you some kind of multiple choice question about which will cover uh, which stage of labor. So this would cover the first stage, but not the second stage. And as you said, yes. the potential big side effect is injection into the fetal scalp. That's correct. Okay, what's another form of block? Another block would be a paravertebral lumbar sympathetic block. So it's just what it sounds like. You basically, It's basically like a, a one-sided epidural block, for lack of a better word, um, that you don't directly inject into the epidural space. Um, and so essentially it covers, again, only the first stage of labor. Um, there's less motor block and things like this for the mom and those side effects of fetal bradycardia. Um, but the big disadvantage is, is, one, it's not a continuous labor analgesic modality, so um, it's really only done one time, it's uh, discontinuous. It does involve bilateral injections to get coverage for the right and left side of the mom. It's technically more challenging to perform, and it doesn't also cover the second stage as well. Okay, great. So those two are both for the first stage. And then uh, is there anything that you can do that would help with the second stage? <laughs> Yes. For the second stage, uh, one could perform a pudendal nerve block, which does cover vaginal vulvar and the perineal area. It's uh, appropriate for a low forceps delivery. Um, That space can be accessed uh, transvaginally or transperineal in the appropriate hands. Um, However, the bilateral success rate is pretty low to get both sides covered pretty well. And there's also, as we mentioned, possible injection into the fetus and injury. This block is generally done really late in the first stage or maybe as the second stage is approaching. So uh, one just has to be careful not to inadvertently injure the fetus. 
Okay, great. Now, do you guys do any of these blocks, or are these pretty pretty uh, obsolete at this point? Sure. We do not at our institution. Um, I'll just leave it at that. Okay, fair enough. I'm, I've never seen any of these done. Okay. Except for the, <laughs> Me neither. the, um, the paravertebral I have seen, um, not for labor, but I've seen it done Correct. for other things. Yeah, yeah I've seen that done for like mastectomies, exactly. things like that, but I um, have not seen it for labor per se. And okay. I personally um, don't perform any of those. Great, fair enough. All right. So are there, when we think about uh, labor analgesia, are there important potential complications we should think about? Absolutely. Um, so there are several, um, but just touch based on a few. Um, one should always keep their eye out for high spinal, which is um, inadvertently mistaking the epidural catheter um, and not recognizing that it's intrathecal. As we discussed, these medications can cause um, high levels to rise. It can impede the respiratory drive for the mom who uh, moms already have impaired uh, residual volume, things like that. Um, FRC, that's what I was trying to say. Um, so moms have low, cannot tolerate a period of apnea very well. So high spinal um, can cause respiratory problems for mom, breathing problems can uh, proceed in imminent uh, delivery. So you always want to keep high vigilance for that, um, that complication. Okay. Uh, local and Local anesthetic toxicity, luckily, is pretty rare in the pregnant population. But again, because moms have a low, uh, cannot tolerate periods of hypoventilation or periods of decreased cardiac output very well, um, given aortic cable compression yeah. and things like this, um, when a mom does have local anesthetic toxicity, one needs to be ready to treat it with intralipid uh, uh, so we lost it there right at the end. So uh, you were saying if we do see local anesthetic systemic toxicity, uh, that we obviously want to be ready to treat it right away and that the most important treatment um, would be intralipid, uh, though obviously if it proceeded to a code, you would do all of the other ACLS uh, things that you would normally do, but also really, really important if you suspect li- uh, local anesthetic toxicity to get and give intralipid. One other complication uh, is when your block doesn't work like it's supposed to. And in this scenario, you don't want to fool yourself that your block is working when it's not. Um, Because one of the main um, safety uh, mechanisms of having a well-working labor epidural is the ability to convert it to a surgical epidural and avoid the morbidity of general anesthesia in a pregnant woman for a cesarean delivery. Um, so one might take the approach of doing a full evaluation of your block, uh, pain scores, motor block, looking where your catheter is secured at the back, finding out what's going on with the mom during labor, um, doing an appropriate intervention, um, and certainly if that intervention doesn't seem to be working, to consider um, replacing the epidural if you don't think it's working. Um, and with our replacement, such as the provider, the uh, the level, the technique, things like this. Okay, so you so you cut out again at the end, but you were saying uh, if you're going to replace the if you're going to replace the catheter, you want to think about what? You want to think about changing uh, as many variables as you can. Um, so, for example, changing who's replacing the epidural. Uh, 
choosing a different level, choosing a different technique. So, for example, if you use an epidural technique for your first block, maybe considering a dural puncture epidural or CSEs, a replacement block, maybe prudent. Okay, great. So, you know, one of the perennial questions that comes up uh, either from patients or from sometimes the obstetricians is does anesthesia or analgesia technique affect labor? And I, this usually comes up with the question of if I get an epidural, will that prolong my labor? But in general, uh, does the analgesic technique of, that one might choose affect labor? Um, so, of course, the answer is yes and no. As always. Um, so we'll know first. Okay. As always. So um, it's generally accepted that with the low doses of labor epidural infusion that um, I'm using, that neuroaxial techniques don't increase the risk of cesarean delivery. Uh, an important factor to note is that, that women who are requesting neuroaxial analgesia, especially early in their labor, probably have something inherent to that that may add for things like this, a big fetus, uh, a malrotated fetus, disproportion um, between the fetus and the pelvis or labor disease. Okay. So that may be the reason for C-section and not the epidural per se. Okay, so our, our connection is not great, but I, I think what you were saying is that um, so uh, there may be something specific about women who end up needing a neuraxial technique, especially early, by which I assume you mean if someone has a lot of pain really early on, that may actually indicate Correct. that there's something going on. They may, for example, have a macrosomic fetus or a malposition, like we talked about, the upside-down position, or there may be a cephalopelvic right. disproportion. So there may be a reason they're having more pain, and therefore it would make it really hard to say if it was the epidural itself prolonging the labor or if it was the reason that the woman wanted the epidural in the first place. Okay. Um, so you, you uh, said it, okay. you said it was yes and no. So what were the what were the reasons why it might affect uh, the why the choice of technique might affect labor? So, Jackie, sorry, we don't have a good connection. Um, so, okay. let's try that. I'm so sorry. Let's, sorry. Let's try that one again. So, let's see. So, um, let's try again the kind of uh, what are the reasons why it might have some effect on, on labor. Okay. So, um, and there is some evidence in otherwise healthy um, nulliparous moms that effective analgesia may speed up the first stage of labor, um, which, again, it may be advantageous to, to some women, I can imagine. Okay. Um, so that is the first stage. Um, the second stage of labor actually increases uh, by 15 to 20 minutes in women who use a neuraxial um, anesthetic. And this might be for a number of reasons, um, even just being the timing of the first stage of labor. So um, these women with epidurals may not be checked until way later um, on in their labor course, and that may alter basically how you measure the first stage of labor per se. Um, but what we don't know is even though it's increased by some time, 15 to 20 minutes, other actual 
increased risk to the mom or the baby. Um, and some of these risks may include things like chorionitis, uh, perineal lacerations, and postpartum hemorrhage. So just to, so yes. you, I think what you, Hello. the last thing you said there was that um, the, there's increased risks to the mom uh, and the, or the, the, the potential increased risks to the mom and fetus are unclear. So chorioamnionitis, lacerations of the perineum, postpartum hemorrhage, we don't know if these are influenced. Is that right? Uh, we don't know if um, these are significantly um, increased by this increase in the second stage of labor by 15 to 20 minutes. Got it. Okay, perfect. In people who use neuraxial. Okay. Um, but what I, what I did want to mention in this, uh, this last section here is that um, the ACOG doesn't have a time frame that after you know, you're in the second stage for this amount of time, you, know, you get a more invasive delivery plan. Um, so that's important that um, they don't have a, a time designation sort of stamped on that for every single, uh, every single woman. Okay. Um, and it probably should be individualized for each patient. Um, and then lastly, in the yes category, um, in terms of vaginal deliveries. So analgesic techniques probably increases uh, the um, decision-making tree of an OB to do an operative vaginal delivery. Um, for example, if a uh, woman is laboring and needs something like low forceps and you have an epidural, it might be an actually more favorable um, scenario to be in instead of needing forceps, not having a neuroactive, and then potentially choosing cesarean delivery over operative vaginal delivery. So it might influence the decision to do so, but it might be in the best interest of the patient and the baby as well to avoid um, an operative delivery, a C-section. So it's probably plus minus. Okay, so that's really interesting. So women, so while it may increase the rate of operative vaginal delivery, which means using forceps or the um, that suction or vacuum, vacuum, right? Vacuum. <laughs> it is uh, right. It is. Um, it may be that these women, if they didn't have an epidural, would actually go and go on to end up in right. C-section. But because they have the epidural, the obstetrician thinks, oh, well, you know, I can comfortably use forceps, so I'll go ahead and do that and avoid, actually, the cesarean delivery. In this, um, you know, culture now where we're trying to avoid cesarean deliveries, opera deliveries might go up anyway. And having an epidural to make it more physically comfortable for the mom may be advantageous. Okay, great. All right. Um, so that sounds great. Um, are there other things uh, that you want to make specific points on, or do you want to kind of sum up? I think sum up is is good. So why don't you okay. sum up for me what you really want people to take home from this podcast? Great. So I think the, um, the first stage of labor, visceral, right, T10 to L1. Second stage, visceral plus somatic, so T10 to S4. Um, we do want to keep in mind um, that pain perception is complex. It's a relationship between uh, physical and psychological factors, and not every woman is going to experience the same pain for the same uh, labor pain stimulus. Um, we do want to keep in mind that labor pain has some significant physiologic consequences, as we discussed, but an appropriate analgesic plan may favorably augment these physiologic consequences. Um, systemic medications like remifentanil and nitrous do have a role in modern-day obstetric anesthesia. However, they also have limitations and side effects, and these should be discussed with the patient. Neurotic uh, uh, anesthetics are still the mainstay. Um, they have an added benefit of having a catheter in place in case the patient needs something like an emergency section. However, these do come with 
side effects as well, as we discussed, high spinal, local toxicity, failure of the catheter. So these need to be, uh, vigilance is needed um, either way. affecting um, affecting the course of labor, again, so the answer is yes and no. No, meaning the C-section rate is not affected with low-dose infusions, but the second stage of labor is increased. Whether or not that causes additional harm is unclear, um, and that operative deliveries may be um, facilitated by neuroaxial anesthesia, so therefore those might be utilized more often in patients that have an epidural. Great. And I think that's it. Jacqueline, thank you so much. That was fantastic, uh, really helpful. And uh, we'll also post uh, some of the references you referred to on the show notes. Yes, um, but absolutely. Thanks, thanks for coming on again and for, uh, for doing this podcast. We'll do another one soon. Thank you. All right. That's it, folks. Again, I apologize for the uh, problem with the audio we had there. Hopefully everything got across. If there's any section uh, that as you were listening you missed or you felt like you just didn't get what she said and I did not catch it and follow up and, and summarize, go ahead and leave a comment on the website, com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C.com. Ask your question and we'll uh, make sure we get that information to you. Of course, you can always email me also at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C at A-C-C-R-A-C.com. If you are a fan of the show, please take a minute to go to iTunes and consider leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. And as it turns out, even if you've already done it, it always helps to leave another one. So iTunes, even even if there's a bulk of comments and ratings, if there haven't been any for a while, then shows start to drop down in the searches, and so it's harder for people to find this show. So if anyone's looking for a good anesthesia podcast, they might not see it quite as readily. So if you have time, even if you've already done, consider going to iTunes, leaving a comment and a rating, maybe uh, just an update on the one you've left before, and uh, that'll help with uh, others finding the show. All right. You can also, of course, join the mailing list. That's com in the upper right-hand corner where uh, you can click there and sign up. I'll send around notifications when a new episode comes out and maybe something else fun every once in a while. If you are a fan of the show and feel like helping support the making of the show, uh, consider going to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash ACRAC, patreon.com slash ACRAC, where you can give even just a dollar or two to help support the making of the show. It really helps a lot, and we, of course, really appreciate it. All right, that's it for today. For Dr. Jacqueline Galvin and the ACRAC podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, What you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.